Blood Brothers Podcast of Five Pillars Production. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa my dear brothers, sisters, friends, and the foes out there, and welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast with your host, Dili Hussain. Before I introduce today's very special guest, I want to remind all the avid podcast listeners that you can find this show on all the major audio platforms under the Blood Brothers podcast. And of course, the YouTubers amongst you all, subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel, like this video, leave a comment, and of course, share it. Today's guest is someone whose presence uh, and appearance is well overdue. I've been meaning to actually have him on in season one, but alhamdulillah, it wasn't meant to be at that time and it was decreed for it to happen today. He is someone whose work I have been following attentively, especially his social media content. Uh, he is joining us uh, from the state of Maryland in the US. He is an Islamic thinker, writer, lecturer, author, and it's none other than my dear brother Ustad Mubin Vaid. Salam alaikum, Ustad. How are you? Good. Alhamdulillah. Alaikum salam. You had, a, you had a far more extensive bio, which I had ready to read out. No, but no, you don't. But, but I, didn't, I, I didn't want to throw dirt in your face, alhamdulillah. No, no, it's, it's just Mubin too, man. Yeah, it's none like, of this Ustad stuff. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, people, like, people like you need the Ustad. No, 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 no. How are you anyway? You okay? Yeah, alhamdulillah, I'm doing well. So. Tell us a bit about Maryland. I mean, we have, we have Maryland cookies in the UK, but what's Maryland oh, Ma- about? Maryland's very uneventful, man. It's a, yeah? it's a, sim- it's a simple state and it's, it's an extension of DC in some ways. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, the area I live in is uh, upwardly mobile and so mostly middle, upper middle class area. Um, that's, that's most of Maryland, although it depends. I'm very close to uh, Baltimore County, okay, which is a bit of the opposite where it's mostly lower income. Um, but yeah, alhamdulillah, I live in a sort of general sur- suburb here. Is there, uh, good Muslim, is there a good Muslim community there? Yeah, there are a couple of Muslim communities. Some are smaller and still developing. Others are a little more established and been around here for a long time. And so Islamic schools, masjids, all the rest. So yeah, no, and if, no complaints. And, and if, if you don't mind me asking, what is your ethnic background? Your heritage? Uh, so, yeah, yeah. So my uh, parents are originally from Pakistan. So Okay. Okay, so if full on full, full on Muslimic, the the, the Pakistani mm-hmm. Muslimics are of a different strand, mashallah. Tabarakallah. <laughs> okay, various stripes, various stripes and colors have emerged from that land. Alhamdulillah. Okay. <laughs> right, Ustad, we we got lots to talk about today, right? And uh, I want to let the viewers and listeners know that the crux of our conversation is essentially around Muslim activism in the West, right? And the and the many challenges and obstacles and sadly pitfalls that we have faced, uh, may well face in the coming years and want to kind of benefit from your experience, your knowledge, uh, and, 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 and just to receive some level of guidance as to what can Muslims do in terms of principles, values, compromises, coordination and mobilizing in light of the secular liberal society that we find ourselves in as diaspora communities. Um, so let me kick off the first question. And the first question would be, what do you believe is the single biggest challenge, I know there's many challenges, but what is, in terms of priority, sure. what, is, what is one of the biggest challenges that you feel that Muslims are facing from a social activism point of view, in terms of attaining our rights and justice and so forth? What's the biggest challenges? Yeah, it's a, that's a, it's a big question. I think there's, there are different ways of looking at that question. One is by trying to evaluate the relative impact Okay. of specific policy areas and the way that they influence or affect the Muslim community. 
And so people can have differences here in terms of what they feel impacts Muslims the most or disproportionately affects our ability to be a civil and dignified uh, community in the West. I, I think that's one way to analyze it. Um, the way I tend to look at, if I were to sort of just try to, uh, try to answer a question like that, is I would say that the biggest challenge is simply the nature of politics in the West, especially what has happened to politics in the last, I don't know, 10 to 20 years. Mm. Um, you know, just the, the fervor of belief that you see expressed in the political space. Yeah. Um, when, when people are political actors today, they aren't doing a, a, a sort of cool technical analysis and calculating what they believe to be the best out of a series of imperfect options. What they're doing is expressing a personal loyalty that they have to a belief system to a broader community that they identify with, towards a social program that they see as moral. And uh, I, I think that's very different than even, you know, the politics that one might have seen in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, where you have mm. Democrats, Republicans, but everybody's an American. There's this sort of binding underlying national loyalty that everyone has or identity that people commit to. Um, again, now, now the feeling is much more vitriolic. It's, it's visceral. Mm. The feeling of being a, a political community, and uh, you know, when when you when you endow politics with that type of meaning, what you're attempting to do, or what you're really doing, is is putting in politics or trying to instrumentalize politics to answer the big questions of life. Mm. And so now in the West, you have the collapse of many centers of meaning, right? The church, the family, all these things have. Are largely in in recession, yeah. and you're investing politics with all of that responsibility and duty, and so modern politics does take on the flavor of an ersatz religion. Um, you know that's that's you know and that's uh, I guess Halak and others would argue that that's just the logic of the state, right? That there's the there's a pervasiveness of it. It's inescapable, right? And, uh, you know, there's no way for civil society to really be independent of the political realm. Mm. And so, you know, what I see from Muslims who are activists, especially those who are activists, but even Muslims who really have a deep psychological uh, obsession with politics is that their real commitment is a political commitment. Mm. And that Islam is simply refracted through their partisan affiliation and not the other way around. Um, and that's not, that's, not, that's not new here. I mean, if you look at Christians and Jews, right, they're first and foremost liberal or conservative. Their religious identity is very much secondary uh, in the process. Your religion becomes very cosmetic. It's just this cultural identity marker. It becomes racialized. It's, it's a way in which I can demarcate myself socially as part of society. It's my identity vis-a-vis -vis other human beings. It is not my value system, it doesn't express my beliefs and my metaphysical commitments. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's where politics comes in. Uh, so I have a political worldview, I have a political dean, mm. and I think that's what we end up seeing in a lot of ways, certainly with activists, but even with Muslims who are now more and more beholden to the political environment that we find ourselves in. Jazakallah khair. There's, there's actually a lot, there's, there's a lot to pick out from that. Let's, let's, let's first start with 
a comment that you a comment that you made, which was this kind of transition or or a move away from traditional politics where you were just a Republican was a Republican, a Democrat was a Democrat, a Tory was a Tory, a Labour was a Labour. This more kind of tribalistic populist kind of po- is that is that what you were yeah. kind of alluding to yeah 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 definitely so so, so, it, so, yeah. so so why has it become the case because we've seen a steady we've seen a steady shift towards that in the uk over brexit of the for of the formation of parties like ukip we've seen that with the national front in france and we're seeing loads of populist parties that were perhaps in the fringes 15 20 years ago are very much mainstream and some of them have even got power in places like hungary Another East European country. Why have we seen this transition? Before we I go into the before we go into the ins and outs of how it's affected Muslims. No, that's a, that's a good question. I don't know fully. You know, one of the things that's interesting is if you look at Enlightenment philosophers, many of them had, many of them wrestled very deeply with questions about the nature of human beings. Okay. And so they tried very hard to understand what are human beings like, and so they'd write about human nature or the state of human beings in nature. What are the types of desires and motivations human beings have, and how can politics interrelate to those? Uh, the old conservative argument for politics is that politics is best when it's limited, and that when human beings are allowed to exist and have the most meaningful parts of their life occur outside of the political realm. Because the idea is that human fulfillment can never be achieved through legislation mm. or policy. It has to occur outside of that realm of society. Now, whether that was fully coherent or not, is a separate question. There are many deep critiques of Enlightenment thinkers, the liberal project, largely collapsing secularity and all of all the rest. But you know this 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 idea that human beings, you know, what 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 are human beings and what do they desire? You know, we know that human beings have this ineradicable desire to try to figure out and seek out truth. Right, truth is a major thing for human beings. People want to transcend their moment. They want to be people who understand what is good and right. And, you know, usually there are, well, historically there have been institutions that have mediated that desire. Um, Those institutions collapsing has resulted in people now appealing to politics as a space and a locus for trying to resolve, answer those questions. And I think that this is what happens when more and more becomes plastic in the world. You know, what you do is you seek out realms of meaning and you Mm. seek out locations of meaning. And strongman politics or more muscular politics becomes a project that can redevelop or reassert a meaning-based society, even if it's a counterproductive one, right? When people are in difficult circumstance, when they've been dislocated, right? When people have become dislocated, they are prone to doing things that are counterproductive, Mm. Because they want to seek out an answer and they want to seek it out quickly and they're desperate and they'll find it or they'll, they'll take it wherever they can find it. And one of the things that progressive politics or other politics is doing in, in other parts of the world is that it is asserting a type of meaning-based society where here's the problem with the world and this is a program of human deliverance. We can actually achieve human happiness. We can provide a certain environment of flourishing provided you give us the political entitlement to do so, right? Give us authority, give us power. That's what we need. And once we have that power, we can socially engineer society in a way where human beings can finally achieve a sort of utopia, something close to it, which right now is being impeded by various authoritarianisms, by oppression, by injustice. And we can identify and speak about that injustice in a particular way, whether that injustice is 
you know, liberal injustice, which is what mm. conservatives argue through uh, various forms of globalization and modernization and the unraveling of their traditional societies, or the liberal argument that, you know, what is, what is severely undermining human dignity is the absence of human inclusion and multiculturalism and the full embrace of the subjective personhood of an individual that wants to live however they want to live. And there's a lot more to that as well. So, so I mean, JazakAllah Khair for actually articulating what I would have asked you right now, which is you've, you've described two spectrums, right? And <coughs> you have to now place Muslim diaspora communities or Muslim minorities in that political reality, yeah? <coughs> Sorry, Ustad. So, so you find what you just said, liberal injustice, uh, which some many within the right or ultra right, however you want to coin these terms, will say that look, you know, these the, the, the progressive politics is essentially destroying and decaying the very fabric of our traditional societies. And then the other argument is the one which you just also articulate very well, and that was that human inclusion, intersectionality, uh, human dignity, right down to the every single individual, and so forth. We now place we now place Muslims in that spectrum, and you want to add to that the war on terror. You want to add to that nine eleven. You want to add to that the 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 non stop laws and policies that have been introduced by successive governments, both in the U.S. and the U.K. and other Western countries, whether they see themselves as liberal or conservative. Both administrations in many swathes of the Western world have introduced laws that have clearly discriminated against Muslims, amongst other people, but Muslims have been under the spotlight for the best part of 20 years. So naturally, this divisive spectrum, Muslims have found themselves in and they want to now kind of position themselves in a way in which it would benefit our cause, what appears to be our causes, whether it be Islamophobia, whether it be marital rights, whether it be um, you know the way we we slaughter our meat, whatever it may be, but generally it's Islamophobia. But we have been tainted by the value and mindset of both spectrums, right? Um, I, I, especially the liberal left, right? Now that that itself, that term Ustad means so many different things to so many different people. Yeah, but I, but I guess what I'm trying to describe in the liberal left progressive kind of spectrum where Muslims have somehow found themselves comfortable as a safe space to talk about their grievances and their issues has come with huge pitfalls, huge dangers, huge blind spots. How do Muslims navigate themselves between that spectrum by saying that, look, Islam is neither left or right. It has, it may have, or, or whatever the Islamic paradigm is and the moral ethical code framework is, it will have some commonalities with the right when it comes to family, crime, society, them kind of things. And when it comes to the the left, there will be maybe issues to do with fiscal policies, justice, and so forth for the similar. And there's other things where we epistemologically are in diametric opposite in both those spectrums. How do we navigate? How do we navigate in that reality? Well, I, I guess, well, your, your sort of question there had me thinking of a few things. One is sort of the question of grievances. I think the question of grievance is a really, really difficult and important question for us to think about. One of the things that modern society has done, it, is, it has fetishized a certain grievance identity and this in the expression of grievance. Uh, a person who's a victim today comes out 
and lets people know about their victimhood. They internalize their victimhood as essential to who they are. And I think that's very dangerous. You know, I, I remember after 9-11, um, actually I was recently, I was relatively recently, I was listening to uh, two journalists and they were having, it was a podcast. And these were two journalists that had both written articles in favor of the Iraq war. One had published an article, I believe, in The Atlantic, and the other had done so in The New York Times. So we're not talking about random bloggers, right? But people whose words actually had a material impact in furthering the cause of the war. And they were reflecting on that, and they regretted having done so. And they were trying to figure out how could they have looked past all of the holes in the pro-war narrative. And both of them basically chalked up their position to 9-11. They said, look, 9-11 was emotionally traumatic for them. One of them was in New York City on the day of. And they said that, you know, they were, they were talking and they were speaking to one another and they said, you know, we, we don't think we really ever appreciated how emotionally and psychologically overwhelmed we were at that time. And of how, how easily, easy we were to manipulate in various ways as a function of that internalized sense of insecurity. And I thought that to some degree that was a very honest reflection that they were making about the types of decisions that they had made and what they ended up expressing and asserting and favoring in light of that. And so when a person simply looks at themselves through the vantage point of being a victim, frequently that can result in the assertion of certain desires that aren't in their own sort of right, justifiable, moral, or legitimate. And that's difficult because it means you actually have to counteract or disagree with people who are talking about their own grievances, which can most you give people a, can, don't. Can you give us an example? Of Islamophobia. Well, Islamophobia is a good example of that, right? Okay. Islamophobia is a great example of that where people can talk about Islamophobia and, you know, the state and the way that it focuses on the Muslim minority, which which is all legitimate, right? Which is all legitimate. No one would disagree with that. When does it become problematic? Can it become problematic? But it becomes, it can become problematic when a person's exclusive view of themselves is as a victim, right? There's sort of a lack of individual dignity, self-respect. You're just, you're just internalizing this inferiority, right? The old uh, Eleanor Roosevelt quote, right? No one, no one, can make you feel inferior without your own consent. I, I yeah. think of that as a psychological problem on its own. Mm. But nevertheless, even if we take that look, at times people need to be able to um, express and internalize their own victimhood and be able to process it. Okay, whatever. But if they're going to take that and say, okay, this is the victimhood I'm feeling. As a result of this victimhood, this is the politics I'm going to express, or this is the identity I'm going to express, or I'm not going to let... I'll, I'll give you a more discreet example. One of the things that comes about oftentimes in discussions of Islamophobia is the need for broad-based coalition building on the basis of a loose Islamic identity. And the idea is that that Islamic identity should not give significant weight to what people believe. Because in the public eye, no one really cares what you believe. You're simply a Muslim to them, regardless of what you believe. To the point where even people who are Qadiani, right? They believe in the Prophet after the Prophet, right? That's kufr, that's not Islam. But the idea is to people on the outside, they're basically looked at as Muslims. So they're undifferentiated sociologically. That should be the prism through which we look at things to the point where they'll get upset when a Muslim even brings something like that up. We say, hey, look. Has, has, that, started, has that started in the U.S.? 
Oh, it's very active in the U.S. Okay, fact, well, in, in the many U- political spaces here, you do have very public sort of Ahmadi Qadiania people who are central to the political mission, and many Muslim groups will c- combat concerns Alha- from Muslims. Alha- Alhamdulillah, that's not happened in the U.K. yet. Alhamdulillah, it's not. I, I, but that I, mean, is, I mean, inshallah, that never happened, and I say that on inshallah, camera. Inshallah, inshallah, yeah. inshallah, it won't. Yep. But that, but that becomes a very explicit right mm. example of that. But there are many examples like that where we say, okay, no, no, no. We, we are a belief-based community first and foremost as Muslims. And when people don't share our core and fundamental beliefs as Muslims, right, then, then we actually have a significant issue here. And depending on what that difference is, then we may not even be talking about Islam, right? In which case, what does it mean to be a Muslim, right? You're just talking about it in those ways. So there's so much for us. I'm I'm really looking forward to where this conversation may or may not lead to. But but but, but, but okay, okay. Let's let's put one thing aside first. Let's look at this the issue of victimhood, right? Um, a dear brother of mine, uh, whom we mutually know, uh, he's a da'i, very very prominent in the UK. Mashallah, tabarakallah. I'm not going to mention his name. He always said to me, "Look, we need to stop with this victimhood mindset, man. We need to stop." But then I also remember saying to him, "Well." You wouldn't say that to a, uh, a victim of rape. If a if a community if a community feels that it has been militarily attacked in the eastern lands, it's being ideologically attacked in the western lands. There's pol- there's policies and think tanks and and legislations and there's literally carnage to prove that we are being victimized. We are being targeted. Why would you tell these people that you are not a victim? Or stop being, stop having this. Is there a difference between acknowledging that you are a victim of oppression, or or allowing that to define who you are from an identity politics point of view? Is that what you're trying to allude to? Yeah, I, I think I think the latter. But I, I would say that you know my my simple answer to that will be well, we evaluate and we appeal to the example of prophets, alayhim salam, right? We see a very strong example in them of individuals who stood up and said difficult things at times in a society where people did not want to hear it, right? Mm. And they were confident. They paid many costs while it was occurring. They bore those costs patiently. They exhibited resolve, right? We see this in the example of the Prophet He doesn't, doesn't sort of meditate or, or marinate in the victim position of the Muslim community. He's giving da'wah, mm. alayhi salatu wasalam. He's giving da'wah. And he's going out and he's preaching Islam to his own social detriment, certainly, and to the social detriment of the early Muslim community. But Amr bil Ma'ruf and Nahyan al Munkar is just part and parcel of that's that's part of the package. That's part of the package. And it would have been much more convenient and certainly much easier to have avoided a number of controversial and difficult topics for him in his society. Just like the other prophets could have done the same. Shu'aib did not have to go in there and start talking about buying and selling. He didn't have to do that. He could have gone to his people and just, you know, taken things easy for a while, right? Understood where his society was, right? Why did he have to be so abrasive about things? Why did he have to put them all in this difficult position where now their livelihoods are being questioned? Right? Lut alayhisam didn't have to start co- commenting on everyone's sexual practices. Mm. Hey, love is love, right? Mm. People are just expressing themselves. Why did he have to go there? Mm. Why not just focus on just slowly and carefully, tadarrud, right? 
build their belief up over years and years and then yeah one day slip it in and see if people buy it but the idea is no like this is this is the deen you're not you don't have to be reckless about it but the the idea that we would simply you know use a particular social or political or cultural circumstance to absolve ourselves of that responsibility and to absolve ourselves from the responsibility of acting in moral and ethical ways is i think the problem there you know even even sort of you know what you mentioned you have the example of the Prophet for instance, where you have a woman who was grieving. And she was grieving in a way where, you know, she was she was grieving in a somewhat problematic excessive? way. Okay. Yeah, excessive way. And the Prophet told her to be patient. Mm. And she didn't know who the Prophet was and she lashed out. She said, You don't know what I've been through, etc. Then paraphrasing. And the Prophet left. And later she came back, she apologized, the Prophet said, Sabra in the Sadmatulullah, right? That patience is at the first strike of calamity. Absolutely. Right? It's at the first strike of calamity. The Prophet reminded her in that moment where she had lost a loved one, I believe her son. But you know, that's a lot and she's grieving, and at that moment the Prophet reminds her to be patient, right? And so it's not an easy thing to talk to people when they've been through difficulties and challenges. Now, how we how we behave pastorally to people based on the specific traumas they've been through will differ definitely i mean it's a sister i mean allah protect them you know if a sister has been raped for instance Mm. right like the idea is that we're going to have a tremendous amount of sympathy care comfort love help and support for such an individual while nonetheless also trying to help shepherd them to a place that is you know, to get them back, right? We're, we're trying to help them heal and rehabilitate themselves. And that's going to take time. It's going to take patience, right? It's going to take working with that person. You know, mostly, you know, sisters that know her, maybe they need therapy and this and that. It's, it's going to take time, right? I'm not saying that this is just an overnight activity where you go in and you tell someone who's been raped, look, like, get your act together, right? But the question is, okay, what what is that sister doing as a result of that? Right. Mm. If a, if a sister goes through something like that and suddenly begins self harming, right, and they're cutting themselves and doing this and that, ideas that we would say, okay, we probably don't want to sit back and just allow this problem to fester. Because it could metastasize. At which point they could take their own life, right? And so these problems become destructive, self destructive in some ways, right? If if that's the type of emotional and personal response that a person's taking on. And I'd say likewise in the political realm, if people are using Islamophobia as a catch-all cover to advance any politics they want, irrespective of how justifiable it is, in light of Islam itself and in the guidance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what they are essentially doing is putting their politics before Allah. That's what they're doing. Well, sir, let me, let me, let me just uh, come in there. You know, forgive me for my lack of articulation the way sure. no, I, no, no. I watch certain things yeah you know when i when i have the honor of being invited to islamic societies uh, in universities up and down the country um I, I i always tell the young shabab brothers and sisters i, I said listen i said if you thought that being a muslim would be easy then you've misunderstood the prophetic mission from the very beginning of our father adam to rasulullah sallallahu because that's the truth of it if you if you felt that you would not be tested in your faith and that that all of a sudden that the masses i.e. the non-Muslims would accept you with open arms with you being a firm believer upon what you believe in if you felt that that was going to happen you've misunderstood and a few times and if, and, and we've given the same examples Musa alayhi salam Shu'ib alayhi salam Nuh alayhi salam Lot alayhi salam loads of re- re- reeled off bare examples. 
But but they would say, well, they had angels and revelation and punishments on their side. We don't. Yeah, but we, they were still they were still you know a number of them were tortured. The MBI were killed, right? Bani Israel killed many of their prophets. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about this. The Prophet mentions this. They killed many, many of their prophets. And some of those prophets they attempted to kill. Right? Many of them lost families. Many of them were estranged and alienated from the people who were closest to them simply as a function of them expressing and preaching this religion. And so it's not as left the I mean the idea that these people just had it easy because they had Malaika in the background. Mm. Um, that's you know I remember years ago. Um, not, not that they had it easy, but they had entities of support. They had, they had elements of support which the Muslims yeah. today don't have. No, I mean, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we still have Allah. Right? True. Right? True, absolutely. I mean, you know, right? If you work in the cause of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah will help you. One hundred percent. Where you thabit aqadamakum and he'll firm your stance, and you know this is this is what Allah tells us, right? This is what Allah tells us. So how and would so you? Person, ca- uh, so, so a person so, uh, who feels like, oh, they had Allah and we don't have Allah. Well, what type of secular view is that? That Allah Subhanahu wa Taala stopped intervening in the world. That that your entire world today is not entirely dependent and contingent on His ongoing support and care and nurturing, and that if Allah Subhanahu wa Taala left you alone for a moment that you wouldn't totally collapse into nothingness I and mean, come on i think i think just just in case one of these brothers or sisters from the isox the ones who asked this question i feel the point they're trying to make is that look when a people rejected the prophets of the past allah sent a, allah sent a punishment to them and, and 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 there were times where angels would come down and literally deliver that punishment upon allah's permission we do, we don't we know that these things, or at least we were foretold in our tradition, that those kind of interventions may not happen in the way it did with the prophets of the past. So when you talk about the uh, candid, uncompromising, assertive manner in which many of the prophets delivered that message of Tawheed and Amr bin Maruf and Nahin al-Munkar, that they had elements of support that we don't have today. It's not that we don't believe in Allah's support and His victory. Is rather they had entities of support that we know that those interventions will not happen now. No, we, we don't know, number one, that those interventions may not happen, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can provide us support in any way He chooses, right? We know that we won't get wahi, mm. right? Mm. <laughs> that we won't just receive wahi today. But the idea that following the example of the Prophet won't come with any support from Allah, either in this life or the next, which is the real life, right? Mm. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's the perspective that we need to start with, right? What are we working towards? What's our purpose here? Right? To your point, Did mankind think, did they think that they would be left to say, we believe, and that they wouldn't be tested, that they wouldn't be tested? This life is a test. And part of that test is our ability to live with conviction and to try to express that conviction in the face of people who may not always want to hear it. And we try to do so with wisdom, with beautiful preaching. We try to do so in situations where people will be more receptive to it and amenable to what we're saying. Um, We're not just sort of abrasive and belligerent and obstinate, but we're rather people who try to dialogue with those who differ with us. We recognize that these things don't happen overnight. The prophets are a great example where they spent years and years and years and years. And sometimes the people didn't believe after that. 
Mm. Right? Sometimes Nuh they didn't believe. Right? Hundreds of years, he tried, he tried, he tried. They didn't believe. Right? And so perhaps people just aren't going to accept the message. That much we know. Not everyone is going to accept the message of Islam, irrespective of how well it's packaged and how well it's delivered. But our responsibility is not to try to... We don't have control over people's hearts. You don't guide whom you love. But it is Allah who guides whomsoever He wills. That's, that's the world that Allah has placed us in. And we try our best and we ask Allah's help in doing so and His forgiveness when we fall short. So given that, so given that we find ourselves as, a, as Muslim minorities in the West, whether it be in the North America or Europe. For about 20 years or so, we've had policies and laws that have, uh, across the Western world, clearly targeting Muslim communities. Uh, we have things like the niqab and burqa ban, halal meat ban in Europe. There's, 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 there's just a catalogue of evidence that there seems to be a clear targeting uh, and witch hunt of the Muslim community as a collective across the Western world, right? In light of this, how are we not supposed to position ourselves politically, ally ourselves politically, to prevent a greater harm? It's an argument that we. It's an argument that it's an argument that we hear constantly from respectable scholars and du'at. Uh, they, you know, but how do we navigate around that minefield where we position ourselves in the need of political alliances to to kind of protect or attain our rights or or, or recourse to justice, but at the same time we're finding ourselves in bed with, allying with people who are diametrically opposed to us in various other issues outside of this issue of Islamophobia and a discriminated minority. Yeah, so... Look, I think a couple of things. I think one is that uh, I don't know if I'm giving the impression that Muslims should not advocate for their rights in certain arenas. I think they certainly should, right? Um, Muslims have been targeted, you're right. And uh, look, the Muslims who get targeted are religious Muslims, right? They're, yep. they're not the uh, sort of uh, yuppie... Non-practicing you know, cosmo- yeah. co- cosmopolitan socialites, yeah. Yeah. right? It's, 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 the, it's the Muslims that go to the masjid that oftentimes find themselves... Uh, being monitored and tracked and aggressively pursued by intelligence agencies and having all of their, you know, life recorded and, and, you know, they're targeted for entrapment and all the rest. And so Muslims need to be able to counteract and work against that, right, within whatever means they can. Part of their working against that may involve, um, you know, specific situational and circumstantial alliance building with organizations that are mutually committed to that particular activity or project, um, in, in that light, you know, there may, be, there may be other people who are non-Muslim that we end up working with, right? Even on the family, for instance, right? Let's say that we're counteracting, I don't know, LGBT, and there are groups that we want to ally with as part of that. There's probably going to be groups that we disagree with theologically and religiously, right? Christian Jews and others. Now, if our alliance results in us valorizing those individuals and results in our own community members and activists, um, you know, championing their causes, causes that explicitly contradict Islam and are within their sort of religious worldview and paradigm, then we'd say that's an issue. That's a problem, right? You have to figure out a way to participate in the world 
in a way that advances things that are consistent with your worldview, it's consistent with your beliefs, and doesn't flagrantly violate it. And that means that you pay invariably less attention to the partisan political waves that are in front of you and that you become much more focused in trying to better society around you. And if you're doing that, the bulk of your work is not going to be sort of political. And it also means that you're going to be a little bit more strategic in the type of activities that you do. I mean, if you look, for instance, at the counterterrorism work, and I'm not, I'm not as familiar with UK politics as you are, but I see organizations like CAGE, for instance, mm-hmm. They seem to be doing some excellent work on that front, and it doesn't seem to me that they're enmeshed in hardcore leftist spaces every single day. Many of the groups that do that type of work in the U.S. are likewise not not sort of you know beholden to far left progressive politics, but they are nonetheless speaking about things like you know closing Guantanamo Bay and advancing the rights of Muslim political prisoners and so on. Right, they're doing that. Even Muslims who look, I remember I remember Iraq War protests that took place. I went to a number of them. And there were groups that came out, and some of them helped organize these protests, and they were communist groups, right? They were basically communists, end to end. But the idea that Muslims were somehow internalizing communist mores and values and attitudes, all of that simply is a function of them getting together to try to lobby the government and civil society against going to war with Iraq. I mean, that was not a real material threat. That was not a real material threat. What you have today are real material threats that are affecting the belief system of Muslims. Their most deeply held beliefs and intuitions are being re-engineered. They are being re-engineered into a belief system of kufr. And as we see that, and as we witness that, we can't be indifferent to that. We can't just be blasé about, oh, you know, we're living in a non... Well, we are living in a non-Muslim society, right? And that should actually mean that we are much more cautious and conscientious about the types of compromises and challenges that are in front of us. And it means that we do as much as we can to try to preserve the integrity of our beliefs, that we don't lose our beliefs along the way, that we don't forget Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because once we've lost that, we've lost everything. You've lost everything. What good is it being an accepted, assimilated minority in a Western society that has no beliefs and values of its own? And it has lost revelation, and it has lost God, and it has lost the sunnah of the Prophet along the way. There's no success in that. That's not a successful model to me. Uh, look, Ustad, I'm in agreement with you. You know, word to word, whatever you've said is, is alhamdulillah, is, is, is the position I come from. But I have to bat for the other side in the sense that how, how would you then respond to those? Uh, and, and I want to know. No, I please, need, no. I, no. I, I, yeah. In the realm of intersectional politics, right? And 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 gender uh, politics and identity politics and all this stuff where you find Muslims and those certain groups uh, and very powerful lobby groups I must add as well um, that happen to be pro LGBT have very strong uh, uh, feminist tendencies um, have made this issue of uh, oppression against Muslims one centered around race. It's, it, how can we not gravitate towards? Allying ourselves with the said aforementioned people of that persuasion, but at the same time, pipe our rhetoric down, pipe our positions on homosexuality down, pipe our position on abortions down. So, in order to attain some other rights for the community. Well, I'm not saying to even pipe it down. I'm saying to express those positions in a way that shows very clearly and unequivocally what we stand for, 
what we believe and that we don't agree with all these people on their political positions. And I'd say that, look, our, our, we have certain, certain interests that we're trying to advance. The extent to which other people share those interests, we can work with them in those situations very circumstantially. We don't lionize and valorize those people and bring them into our spaces and talk about how... But that's happened. That's, ha that, that's, yeah, happened. That, 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 that's happened in your front yard, and it's and it's coming to our front yard. So, I so, know. That's, so, so, that's the problem, right? So, 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 so we so, made so, these people heroes in the eyes of young Muslims, right? So, so, so what? So, so, how, so how do we address those issues when they, when when they invite to big Islamic conferences, given keynote speeches, and they are lionized, and, they, and sometimes they're lionized by our own our own mashaykh and our own ulama and our own du'a. So, how do we overcome that then? Well, I mean, those people are, I mean, this is, this is the unfortunate reality is that what, what's happened is that many of these institutions and organizations have set up the community for tremendous damage, right? Tremendous damage, because when you have, when you become a political community first and people's identity is pr principally reflected through the politics that they are affiliating and associating with, and they've internalized that political worldview and the partisan identity They've made that their religion. They've made that their faith. And over time, they're going to be less interested in your conference. They're going to be less interested in your masjid. Because if they're, if all they cared about was the activism and defeating the right or, or you know winning one over on the conservatives, they don't need Islam for that. They don't need the Muslim community for that. In fact, they can get that. They, they can get a lot more of that and probably better people who can do that better elsewhere, right? And this is the thing, right? If you look at sort of the activist circuit, these are people who stand for what they believe. And they stand for what they believe even when it's not possible, uh, or even when it's not popular. I mean, you're looking today, like, you know, I was reading this morning, Netflix, right? Mm. They've had this internal mutiny that they're trying to over mitigate the, and manage, the, right? The, Ch the Chappelle thing. Yeah, over the whole yeah. Chappelle thing. Yeah. And you have a number of employees that have done things knowing that they were going to get fired. Mm -hmm. And one of, one of the people, there's a woman who's quoted in the media, and she said, I'm just tired of this, you know, amoral, algorithmic, you know, injustice or, or monster, and just standing pat and allowing it to do whatever it wants to do, right? Now, regardless, obviously, I like substantively disagree with what she believes is immoral. We have a different sort of moral schema than she does. The idea is that she's, she's a person who is who is clear on her beliefs and values. And she is unwilling to jeopardize or compromise them simply to make another dollar or to make a buck. She's willing to lose her job over that. And she's willing to go out publicly and say, look, I could not stand for that anymore. And I think that that type of model and example, even for people who disagree with it, is an admirable model, right? The idea that people stand for something, right? People are, people are attracted to conviction and strength. And when you have a community where you bring in people who stand for something and you say that this is what my beliefs are, these are what my values are, that's effectively what those people are doing. They're coming into Muslim spaces and they are missionaries. They are missionaries. And they are spreading their gospel in our spaces. And young people are absorbing all of that. And then they're coming to the mosque and they're coming to the masjid and they're saying, well, all of this sort of religious stuff that you're telling me, all of these nusus not only are difficult for me to understand, but they're bigoted and they're hateful mm -hmm. and they're backwards. Why would I want to be part of a religion like that? And so either you have to go down the route of, you know, severely watering down your Islam 
and remaining within a very narrow realm of what you're going to talk about, which is, you know, personal spiritual reformation and, you know, speaking well and important topics, right? Not, not course, things that are inessential to Islam, but the idea is that this is all you're, you're safe to speak of are the types of reminders that will never ruffle a feather, right? And many people condition themselves to, do, to doing just that and staying within that realm long term, right? They don't need, uh, you know, Wizarat al-Awqaf or whatever it is in these Muslim countries to write out their khutbahs. Their khutbahs have been naturally read out, written out in their own minds about what is and is not off limits, right? Bostad, you know the situation that you've just described, yeah? We have to, we have to accept that, you know, you know, some of the inclusion of uh, problematic individuals with problematic worldviews that have been not just introduced to within our communities and institutions, but as you rightly mentioned, lionized. It was done under the premise, yeah, of the Islamic cited premise of maslaha, mafsada, maqasid, minority fiqh. You know, uh, surviving as a minority community. It was all done with Islamic jargon. And Islamic terminologies They didn't come through the front doors of our masajids and our, and our conferences They came through with the stamp of approval And with the language of the things that I've just mentioned Yeah, I mean that's, that's its own sort of ball of wax The whole notion of, uh, you know uh, The exercising of minority fiqh The exercising of really fringe fiqh positions That sometimes were kind of sort of supported by one person or another mm. um, but perhaps we're not even even then they're, they're being sometimes misrepresented and they're being marshaled to make a much more thoroughgoing case of how Muslims should participate in society uh, I think that number one the whole question of maqasid sharia the maqasid are obviously higher principles or objectives of Islamic law that have been deduced from revelation they're not instruments to circumvent revelation Right, many modern people tend to view maqasid or masalah al-mursala and everything else, and they mm. see these as a sort of ethic, like the spirit of the Sharia is encapsulated here. And then what you have is just this this set of data, right? You have this collection of like, you have this this sort of uh, akhbar, right? Yeah. You have these you have these ahadith and you have these yeah. ayat, and then you have the spirit of Islam. And what you do is you filter this through this, as opposed to recognizing that no, this actually came first. Absolutely. This came first. Maqas came much later. And the scholars were, were reviewing all of this and saying, okay, what, what um, epitomizes the ethos of revelation? Well, it is these underlying principles. And these principles are ones that are essential for Muslims to maintain. And if Muslims are going to say, hey, we're going to be exercising you know, some broad-based justification and 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 you know, argue that what we're doing is grounded in some greater maslaha, tell us what that maslaha is. Actually provide that, right? Most people just think that the masalah are axiomatic. The maslaha, the, benefits... the, the, the maslaha is, and I'm going to be citing people, paraphrasing people that we both mutually know. Okay. I, I'm, going to be par- I'm not going to mention their names, but I'm going to mention people that we both know that we, we, we somewhat have a good relationship with, that they will say the word. Okay. The, mas- the, mas- the maslaha is, is to prevent the greater harm of further victimization, further targeting, further Islamophobic attacks. That's what they would argue. Well, you know, again, and it depends on the example, but most of the time that argument's brought up, it's not really even achieving that, mm. right? It's not as if just having like a brown face talk about something suddenly results in uh, this grand maslaha being accepted more readily in the West. 
so that's that's one thing, right? And obviously, the maslaha has to be counteracted by a deep review of what are the mafasid, right? What what what's the mafsada here, right? You don't just look at masalah, you look at mafasid. And if the aggregate or net effect on this is a destabilization of Muslim commitments and a loss of faith amongst young Muslims, then what are you achieving? At the end of the day, look, at the end of the day, if Muslims simply want to be accepted, the path to acceptance is not hard. It's easy. Right? It's easy. Look, Uyghurs in China. Uyghurs in China. If they just gave up the Quran, Sunnah, just started yeah. practicing like yeah. Han Chinese, yep. they wouldn't be in these re- they wouldn't be in these education camps. The fact that the camps they wouldn't and, give it up. Yeah, the fact that the camps they wouldn't give it up. Yeah, yeah. So they're, people would say they're they're being so stubborn as a minority. Why are they being so stubborn? Yani talk like everybody else, dress like everybody else, just become Confucian atheists or whatever, and live normally in China. You're not going to have any problems there. I do what the what crazy. Th- do what the crazy thing as well, Ustad. If there was ever a Shari'i justification for any group to do that, it would be them, if anything. No question about it. No question about it. In India, you know, oh, the Hindus are giving you such a tough time. This, okay, you know what? Don't, don't make beef an issue. Don't make this an issue. Don't make that yeah. an issue. Just be quiet. You know, just, just participate in society like a normal Hindu person. Mm. You can do that, and right? it would be easy. It's, it would be easy if you want in America. If you want in America to just not. Encounter challenges and difficulties. Okay, just be like any other American guy, right? Dress like them, talk like them, give up your names, just call your kids whatever kafir name you want to call them, right? Give them non-Muslim names, make them indistinguishable from the non-Muslim person. You're not going to encounter many challenges. Trust me, you're like brown skin alone is not that objectionable to somebody. You're not just that sort of irreducibly racialized, Mm. such that all of that cover is not going to pass in front of people and they're still going to hold some internalized you know, suspicion about you. Perhaps there will be some remnants, but you know what? There are brown CEOs of Google CEO and this and that, yeah, Microsoft CEO, right? Mm. Ethnic minorities have made it in their, you know, they've made it in high society in the West. You know, they've made it in high society in the West. So if you think that that's impossible, then you're kidding yourself. But the whole point is, what is the cost in doing so? My point is merely that people are going to argue that any activity that results in greater Muslim acceptance right, is itself justified simply based on the fact that it grants us some means of acceptance without evaluating what that acceptance entails, what the consequences of that acceptance is. Well, I'm going to reject that. I'm going to say, no, absolutely not. What, what have we gained if we make those, and, and most of the time, what, what really gets me about it is that most of the time, it doesn't even accomplish what people insist that it accomplished, right? And so all this like leftist, LGBT activists, what has it given the Muslims? What have Muslims gotten out of this? I mean, they, they, we've been doing this in America for, a dec- for over a decade now. Muslims have been hard leftists. You've had any number of activists that have gone out publicly pro-LGBT, tweeting this way, attending marches, doing this, doing that, constantly. It has been inveterate. Muslim so, organizations. So, 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 I mean, we have 16 and a half Muslim MPs. Is it, I say half is because I don't know when Sajid, uh, Sajid Javid decides <laughs> okay. to, sometimes he decides to be a Muslim, sometimes he decides not to. Okay. So, so 16 and a half, yeah? Not okay. a single one, Ustad. Not a single MP voted against the RSE bill uh, that was introduced in 2019 or March 2019. 
Not a single Muslim MP voted against it. The vast majority voted for it. Uh, how uh, Mayor Sadiq Khan continues year after year to be at the front line of pride events, holding hands, dancing, prancing about, saying that we love you, you are from us, and we are from you. All these kind of, and we have the same with Rash the Tlay, we have the same with uh, the Somalian sister. Yeah. So, yeah. How how much trust? Do we put in these politicians How much trust do we put into Mainstream politics and engaging with it In terms of attaining whatever rights Or justice we think we deserve as a minority Yeah I mean Ilhan Omar a few years ago She came out and she condemned the West Bank The Palestinian Authority Because the Palestinian Authority and the West Bank did They rejected a Proposal to have a pride march In the West Bank Yep. They did not want a pride march in the, And she condemned them And so you know What's going on here, right? If you look at what's happened in LGBT politics over the years, it has become a, a, a cudgel to bludgeon Muslims domestically and to make them look uh, backwards, insufficiently integrated, bigoted, hateful, and discriminatory. It has been used to try to re-engineer the beliefs and values of our children as it gets more and more integrated into schools, and it is weaponized against Muslims around the world, in Muslim countries. Absolutely. In Muslim countries, where now what you've done is not only not achieved any of the many masada you promised us, but you are now affecting Muslims around the world and undermining their sovereignty and their ability to live with any notion of moral autonomy. Because what now your countries are doing is that they're tethering aid to that, they're tethering economic support, sanctions to that, yep. and suddenly now you can be you can be a small politically irrelevant Muslim country that gets the hammer, a total sledgehammer, of Western hegemony at your doorstep simply because you have differences on the LGBT issue. That's the bottom line. It is. And so, you know, the more we see this taking place, the question is, at what, at what point are we going to take a step back and actually ask the question of what these great masadah are that were promised? What has happened to, you know, any gains that, in my view, Allah knows best, any gains that Muslims have made in America over the past 10 years have occurred largely in a way that has been, you know, the, the sort of LGBT leftist alliance has been irrelevant to those gains. They have occurred simply as a function of, you know, the, the ongoing machinations of Western political gamesmanship. Right? Would, one party I, wins, I, the other party lose, one party... That's, of course. It's just been that at a much higher level. How, how would you then respond to the fact that, you know, the very fact that even Muslim majority countries uh, that are now forced to essentially subscribe to and assimilate to to those things and, and attach to it is funding, aid and so forth. Wouldn't that then be an argument to actually continue this methodology? That look, if we stop doing that and we start you know, talking, being a bit more assertive and uncompromising about our beliefs, etc. and so forth, that that will only get worse. Yeah, well, you know, the whole point is that you have to try to counteract this for the mutual benefit of the Muslim community as a whole, right? We see ourselves as part of the ummah. Anything that's going to undermine the Ummah's ability to assert itself as a moral community is something that we should all be on guard against, right? I mean, in some ways, you can, in some ways, you know, when you think about, uh, you think about Muslim history, right? And just, just the, 
the notion of Islam itself, right? You can attack us, you can imprison us, but once you start changing what we believe, we've lost, right? Mm. We've lost at that point, right? What, we can live through and survive, you know, the, the notion of resistance is part of the Muslim ethos, right? Absolutely. It's part, it's part of our backbone. Absolutely. Right? And that, you know, we have scholar after scholar in history that gladly went through prison sentences, lengthy prison stays, just not even a word of frustration or anger or displeasure with Allah's decree. Alhamdulillah. It's, you know, Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, what can my enemies do to me? Do to me. This type of thing. Imam Ahmad, rahimahullah, just this, that it's, I'll stay here as long as I need to stay here, right? But Islam is going to stay. And I'm not changing anything. I'm not changing anything. You can tell me that my belief is wrong, you tell, but, the, but Islam matters more. I'm, who am I? Who am I? I'm, I'm just a person. My time in this world is temporary. I'm going to have to answer in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's, that's the end game here. And if we're not working towards that, and that does not animate our world and our attitude and our participation in any sphere of the world, then we have problems. We have problems because what we're doing is we, have, we are self-secularizing our own intuitions, our own evaluation of what we should do, right? And once you're this sort of secularized identity community, well, then let's just, let's be as Machiavellian as we need to here. Let's create some alliances here. Let's do this. Let's do that. It doesn't really matter, right? The whole game is simply a game that's ordered around public acceptance and social acceptance and greater cultural representation, irrespective of what that representation looks like. And, you know, at the end of that road, you've lost. You have lost it all to me. Wow, man. You know, you know, Star, you know when you think about how things have kind of just, I don't want to use how things have progressed, how things have developed in the course of the last five to ten years. You know, there's a saying in the UK that we have, because let's hope what's happening in the States doesn't arrive in these shores. And let's hope that we... So <laughs> in, 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 because that's not, to say that we, that's not to say that we don't have our own issues. We have very similar issues, yeah? Sure. But obviously there's, there's obviously finer differences. But the point is, is it not a case that when a people have been wronged when when a community has found itself in a situation where literally uh, people of a particular thinking backed by states and militaries are literally resorting to violence and murder and wars that that the natural gravitation towards those who are not doing that isn't so bad because that's a common argument i've heard i goes hey we might be allying with the left and so forth but it's not the left that's looking to kill us off it's not the left that's, that's waging wars. It's not the left that are d- doing this. When the irony is that Tony Blair was of Labour and he was left, but in, in the context of the UK. But it's a very common one that you hear, isn't it? The right want to exterminate us, and then the ca- the counter would then be, well, the left want to kind of exterminate your dean. I, I I know it's a very cliched statement, but 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 it's one sure. that we hear, hear a lot. The right want to finish you off physically. The left want to finish you off spiritually. Right? Yeah. Um. So. so, so yeah, well, it is it is a bit of a cliche, right? I think even even politically, I don't think it's entirely accurate. If you look, for instance, I mean, I think it might have been accurate maybe 10, 15 years ago, right? Um, but now, you know, you've had dramatic changes, especially with Trump in the right wing, that is very ethno-nationalist, uh, America first politics. They are not nearly as concerned what happens internationally. In fact, Trump 
kicked off the retreat from Afghanistan and wanted to get troops out of there as quick as possible. Mm. And, you know, people were saying, oh, you know, he's he has his ulterior motives and he doesn't really care about Afghanis. And it's like, okay, who cares? I don't need ikhlas Mm. from this guy to get people out of (laughs) to get people out of like American troops out of Afghanistan. All Mm. I need is them out. Right. Mm. Whether he's doing so with like the most sincere motives or not really doesn't matter to me. Mm. Right. And now Joe Biden did so, you know, I, I guess on that note, at least to his credit. Um, but the whole the whole point is that, look, you know, you've, you've had that. You've had conservative groups that have taken stances against China and in support of the Uyghurs. You have recently had progressive groups that have actually come out and actually tried to rein that in. Yep. And have said, no, this is unfairly disparaging Chinese people and it's going to result in anti-Chinese animus. And we don't need to put all these sanctions on the Chinese government. We need to be more open with them and this and that. There's progressive politicians. You know, they signed this. There was a recent statement that they put that together. So these are left-wing groups that are directly undermining and contradicting the best interests of some portion of our ummah that is being oppressed in very extreme ways, Right. And so there is that. And so, you know, when you just think about the appetite for war, the appetite for war has decreased, at least for right now, a little bit in, in a bipartisan way. Uh, I think there are, you know, actors on both the left and the right that are o- always clamoring for intervention, right? Mm-hmm. You know, oh, it's not like Obama came in and suddenly, you know, military intervention even subsided. It actually got worse. It exacerbated, right? Yeah, he's, the, dr- he's, the, the drone he's strikes. The drone. Yeah, yeah, he's the, the drone the, king. the drone president. Yeah, exactly. And he kicked off wars and military expeditions and exploits in places that were not occurring before him, especially in Libya and other countries. And so this, this idea that the left is just in, uncritically pacifist and, you know, does not, does not, have any you know political interest in actually going to war with the Muslim countries is I think misguided, mm-hmm. and I look I mean uh, you know the sanctions over Brunei for uh, for uh, its you know establishment of hudud penalties and the hudud laws that was led by left wing politicians right left wing politicians were the co authors of legislation that was passed specifically saying that. And so they're now undermining the economic stability of Muslim countries precisely for that reason, too. And so if you just think about the way that economic sanctions affect Muslim countries, well, people die as a result of that, right? These aren't immaterial Mm. because people now can't get access to core goods and services. You have a drastic reduction in access to things like clean water or to food supplies. This isn't just like a shortage of novelty boutique items. But this actually undermines those countries' ability to subsist and live in many circumstances and ways. And this is what these people are doing, both on the left and the right. So I don't think any, any side of the political aisle necessarily represents like a great, you know, a, a dramatically or disproportionately better option, at least on this count. At least on this count. I don't think anyone is disproportionately better for Muslims. I think there are certain policies that a person might look at and say, okay, well, you know, there's the Muslim ban, for instance, where... You know, the Republicans were in favor of, of you know, banning immigrants or refugees from a certain number of Muslim countries. And but, that was a policy that, but that was a policy that Obama introduced, no? The, the initial travel ban. Uh, yeah, Trump, I, I, Trump, I don't, Trump just added a few countries onto that list. Was that not the case? Yeah, I, I think in, perhaps made it much more draconian yeah. in terms of the extreme vetting and all mm. of that. And so that did, that, there's a real impact to that, mm. right? There is a real impact, and I'm not trying to undermine that or belittle that. So there are specific policies like that where we may say, okay, this political party is, is more in our favor than another political party. But so be it, right? The idea that, okay, we have two grossly imperfect options, and 
you know, someone wants to like hold their nose and, and sort of toss a ballot in for one of them based on a, a calculation of the relative benefits on an aggregate view of what those people are advancing, okay, right? Number one, even if someone does that, I, I think that we have to be honest that the political act of voting, especially in like presidential elections, probably one of the most meaningless political acts that a person can actually do, mm. right? It literally is, simply because the, you know, when you take into account the electoral college and the way you know, politics works, you know, the idea that your vote matters that much is just grossly overstated. It's, it's sort of childlike fairy tale about politics that but people why, still why, buy into. Why, why, why do we hear it election after election from the member from our leaders, from men, from men of the. Why do we always hear that? That you're. Po- I don't know, man. I can't figure it out. It's a- yet, yet when, yet when I have conversation. Look, th- th- this conversation, this this segment between you and I now, Stad, is not about the permissibility of voting or not. We're not talking about. We're yeah. talking about. We're talking about why is it with the track record of what's been happening, election after election, do we hear from our pulpits that your vote counts? When 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 we actually look at, I mean, in reference to the UK. When we look at the masajid, the halal butchers, the Muslim cemeteries, the Umrah and Hajj travel operators, all of these things were done by our forefathers without the vote. Of course. <laughs> it was their blood, sweat, their blood, sweat and tears, their, their, their lobbying of politicians locally, right? Um, them, pu- pu- them putting their money where their mouths are is, uh, is the infrastructure that we benefit from today It wasn't done from getting a particular council and MP into power Literally, a lot of the things which we enjoy as Muslims in the UK Was done from the blood, sweat and tears and hard work and savings of our forefathers It wasn't to do, it wasn't to do with the votes and the MPs and stuff like this Yeah. So I, I, it just baffles me that any also on another level that on, on any serial meaningful radical change that's happened in society, whether we look at the the, the women's emancipation movement in the UK, whether it be the suffragists or the suffragettes, whether it be the Indian independence movement, whether it be the the anti-apartheid movement, whether it be whatever the early hopes that we had in the Arab Spring, it was all done outside of the ballot box. Yeah, of course. I, I, yeah. The, the civil liberties movement. It, it, there's just too many examples to cite. Where meaningful, serious changes happened outside of the ballot box. No, so, and people, and people who really—I mean, just about every case that I've seen—people who invest themselves in that space are far more, far more likely to be formed by it mm. than to form it themselves to have any impact and influence on it. I don't see like, okay, you know, we now have more Muslims in politics, and now we're starting to see a sort of slow shift in legislation that favors. No, it's not. What happens is. They've they've done their time. They've made it, and now they are you know indis- undistinguishable from indistinguishable from Ustad, any other politician that's part of their party. Ustad, wallahi, I've I've always maintained this right, and and <coughs> I know someone will disagree with me. I've always maintained it is actually better for us to deal with white non-Muslim politicians than our own. I'll tell you why. Because once they, because you have to understand, uh, the Muslim MPs that we've had, they've said, look, man, it's a greasy poll. Oh, we can't do this. You don't understand the pressure that we're under. Then you're no good there, are you? Yeah. You're no yeah. good there because, because quite frankly, you will set a precedent that will then be imposed or, or, or expected from the rest of the community because of shenanigans that you've got up to. Well, at least, 
at least your politicians are sort of framing things in those ways. I no, think no, most no. of the I think most of our Muslim politicians are true believers in their politics. No, like, we, I don't think. Uh, I hard, think I think the politicians sort of, yeah. here aren't just like you know. Oh, we're just acting as political actors because we have we're part of this you know bigger political machine and we have to work within it. I think they genuinely believe in what they're doing. I mean, no, they're. No, I, there's a handful. Uh, I mean, uh, that, that, alhamdulillah, I have sixteen or seventeen Muslim members. I, I could at least say there's a handful that yeah. will say in a secret, in in in, in an unrecorded environment that look, yeah. we're, we're in a difficult situation. We know that we know that the state is uh, unequivocally pro-Israel. We know that there is an agenda against Islam and Muslims, but we can't do what you expect us to do. You're asking us to get, and then I, then then my feeling is then when we don't need you there. We don't, we don't need you to what you because yeah. because your yeah. silence your silence your is essentially seen as consent and then it's imposed on us yeah see in many ways the politicians we have i think and, and it's not just the politicians we have i think the political environment we're in especially on the polls are, are people who their their sensibilities and attitudes to me much more closely reflect what you might see from a new convert to a faith you know when people convert to faiths they can take on a certain type of zealotry Mm. And even f- they become even fanatical at times about their faith. Of right? course, they want to they want to represent it. They're they're proud. They want to stand up and let everybody know about it. Yep. And sometimes that can be a virtuous thing and a positive thing, but you know, unfortunately, in this case, that faith that they have converted into is a political faith, and now they're very proud of that political faith, and they want to stand up and show and demonstrate their uh, bona fides to that broader ideology and political worldview that they're a part of. And so in some ways that what we're dealing with in the U.S. are really true believers, right? These aren't just people who are saying, oh, you know, we think that this is, um, you know, I'm just, I just happened to get voted in, in the Democratic Party, provided me a platform. Otherwise, I wouldn't have made it with Republicans. And, you know, I have to play ball a little bit here. And if I don't play ball, I'm just going to lose my seat. I think these are people who genuinely, even before they won their seats, were already, you know, they, they, were, they were part of the program, Right. And many of them actually represent the far left of mm. even the Democratic Party platform. And so I think in many ways their principal commitment is to the partisan political program that they're part of. And that's where their values lie. That's where their beliefs are centered and situated. And uh, this, is, this, is, this is a secularizing of religion, right? I mean, if you look at Christian Jewish communities, what happened, right? You can have someone who's like identifies as a Christian but doesn't really give any effect to that faith. Because what what happens in the secular society is that religion is privatized. It's seen as something that is relevant specifically for your home, that it provides you a way in which you can um, navigate certain rituals in your social life. So how do we bury someone? How do we get married? You know, there are a handful of things that religion will become relevant for me in, right? But aside from that, when it comes to, you know, the real questions of the day the things that matter i take inspiration from politics on those issues right and i think that that's to a large degree what's happened with our politicians here and i think many many young muslims have internalized a lot of that and uh, unconsciously internalized that type of worldview where you know okay we're muslim but we're muslim in a way that is as cosmetic as cosmetic and as thin as the liberal Christian, right? They're sort of the liberal Muslim whose liberal affiliations, whose liberal commitments, whose liberal beliefs come first. And when a Muslim sort of places those liberal values first, then 
you know, Islam becomes uh, becomes a very uh, uh, a difficult, you know, belief system because of the fact that, you know, we have a Sharia, right? I mean, in some ways for Christians, their their Sharia, especially modern Christianity, there really is no Sharia. There is no the notion Sharia. Of halal, the notion of halal, haram, it really doesn't factor in to their religious doctrine and discussion very often. Um, you know, Catholics seem to have a handful of things, Protestants even less than that. Um, you know, by comparison, we have a very, very wide-ranging set of beliefs very. that we, you know, are, we give effect to our beliefs in our daily lives. We give effect to it in our daily lives everywhere. And if you're unwilling to give it effect, not because you're just a faulty Muslim who has shortcomings and doesn't always live up to the demand and responsibilities of being a Muslim, that happens, right? People fall short, they make toba, we're, sin, we're sinful, we're errant Muslims. Um, but, you know, that, that's a different thing that someone who is deliberately disinterested in certain aspects of Islam or finds those aspects of Islam off-putting as a function of their core commitments, which are politically inspired and motivated. Bringing the podcast to a close, Ustad, uh, we've spoken about and we've at least attempted in a, in, in a very limited way to unpick some of the challenges. We've spoken about some of the obstacles that we're facing. Let's conclude the podcast with some words of nasiha. You know, if there's going to be uh, Islamic societies and MSAs, uh, Muslim students, um, those who are still in uh, um, secondary school, uh, or wherever they may be in the workplace when they're having to do, because, you know, obviously now you know, the whole kind of Pride Month now is kind of imposed on, on many, many companies, and, and Muslims are expected to wholeheartedly participate. Uh, in these things and, and, and refusal to do so will make them a target in the workplace again not affecting their income and their and their and their, and their uh, livelihoods so you know putting all of that into consideration please give us some words of advice on how to navigate inshallah uh, with the with the deen in our mind in our hearts and and, and not selling the deen out, not watering it down, not compromising it. But give us some words of advice and nasiha to for, for for the shabab, for the youth who may be watching this, and not even maybe the youth, grown adults who face these challenges and have to deal with their children when they come with questions from school. Give us some words of advice as we conclude the podcast. Yeah, please. well, you know, you just remember, if nothing else, the hadith of the Prophet right? That Islam began as something that was strained. We say audu right? That it will return to that, right? And what is the end of it? Give the glad tidings to those who are alienated and ostracized as a function of their beliefs, right? Um, this, is, this is the example that we have in the Prophet ﷺ. This is the example that we have in the companions, anhum, that they faced tough obstacles and difficulties and they stood firm. And that should give us inspiration to stand firm in our times. And sometimes it's going to be difficult, right? It won't always Right? And along the way, you might be surprised that people will respect you more at times. Right? You might find that many people begin to change their views or ideas or perception about the, type of it, <coughs> about the type of positions that you're taking that you may assume are going to be off-putting or are going to be rejected by them. Um, and so you can be pleasantly surprised <coughs> right, at times. It may, you know, it may be the case that exactly what you feared will happen. That may, in fact, be the case, that exactly what you fear will occur where you will get written off, dismissed, you may face some consequences, but bear them patiently, inshallah, right? Because this is, this is what this dunya is, right? We remind ourselves that this life is short, that it's temporary, 
that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has put us here for a determined period of time, which at the end of it all will seem like a handful of days. And the dodging and tackling of our day-to-day lives in the grand scheme of things will appear far more trivial. And what we need to be able to do is transcend our circumstances and remind ourselves of Allah's words, remind ourselves of the Prophet Sallallahu guidance. And that means being deeply connected with our faith. It means being deeply motivated and driven by our beliefs as Muslims and finding spiritual purpose and meaning and value and conviction in that, right? Um, you know, when, when we talk about salvation and deliverance, this is, this is what Islam is all about, right? And it has staying power, right? Politics are fickle. The, the issues that we see today that are tearing our communities apart or causing crises for our youth, who knows where we'll be a decade from now on those very topics, right? Who knows where we'll be a decade from now? You know, what, what, you know, why would you want to lose your faith over an issue that, you know, five years from now may not even be that big of a topic anymore, mm-hmm. that we might have moved on from it, or we may be dealing and fighting with a completely different set of issues, right? Um, it, you know, the, the point of revelation is that it'll, it gives you a sphere and a set of guidance against which you can evaluate your own society and through which you can determine what is right and what is wrong. It is difficult in a given social moment when popular society tells you something is right and revelation tells you something is wrong to see the forest from the trees. It's tough. It's very tough to see the forest from the trees, especially when something is popularly accepted, when it is regarded as moral and virtuous and ethical. And that's why you have guidance. That's why you have revelation. To set you aright. To let you know that no matter how many people are saying or doing something, it doesn't make it right. And even if a handful of people are standing for the truth, it is no less the truth simply because of its numerical, uh, you know, uh, insignificance in the grand scheme of things, right? We're talking about a handful of people. That handful of people have Allah with them. And so that would be my general nasiha. Now, obviously, some people might counteract that and say, well, that's a very utopian way of seeing things. Well, no, it's not, right? It's simply saying that we anchor ourselves in our beliefs first. We participate in society, trying to preserve and uphold those beliefs and live as Muslims. And the extent to which any political effort advances that that should be our focus, not, you know, the sustainability of a socially identified Muslim community that just has a bland, nondescript, uh, brown ethnic identity of a racialized Muslim community, but really has no substance insofar as our beliefs and values, and certainly Allah's guidance is concerned. And Allah knows best. Ustad Mubin, Jazakumullah Khairan, may Allah bless you and preserve you. I mean, it was it was a great honor having you on. Inshallah, it won't be the it won't be the last time. Inshallah. 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 <laughs> Brothers and sisters, I hope you enjoyed uh, today's podcast and benefited from it as much as I did. Uh, please remember to subscribe to the Five Pillars YouTube channel, share and like and comment on this video, and of course for the avid podcast listeners, you can find us on all the major audio platforms. And until next time. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Blood Brothers Podcast, a five pillars production.